just like you, I've always been curious about successful people. In season two, we'll delve further to explore passion, purpose, and peace with today's heroes. Join me as we chat with inspiring and accomplished women and men who will share their journeys and life hacks to pass the power on to you. I am delighted today to have Violet Oon here for another episode of Pass the Power with me, Paige Parker. Welcome. Hi, Paige. It's lovely to be here. We all know Violet Oon is Singapore's grand dame of Peranakan food, but she has many successes in her esteemed career. She began in journalism as a reporter for music and the arts, becoming a food critic a few years later. Her passion for food led her to launch a culinary magazine and then to establish her own food store in Takashimaya in the 1990s, as well as the first Violet Oon's Kitchen restaurant in the now fashionable Bukit Paso Road. She's received two Lifetime Achievement Awards in 2018 from SPH's Asian Masters and from the World Gourmet Summit. And then again in 2019, she received a third Lifetime Achievement for Outstanding Contribution to Tourism from Singapore's Tourism Board. She is a passionate woman filled with purpose, and she's here to share her peace with all of us. So exciting to have you here, Violet. So excited to be here, Paige. <laughs> we talked about the accomplished career, and I wonder, because you are most famous for your food, I also know that your mother didn't cook. So who did the cooking, and what led you to create and cook the recipes of your family? Why was that important? You know, my mother was a career woman in the 1940s and 50s, and in those days, you're not meant to be a superwoman. If you had a career, you didn't cook. In, in those days, the maids that would be cooking. And then I have my aunts on weekends cooking Peranakan food. Then we went to London in 1961 for one and a half years. And I really missed the taste and flavours of Singapore. And I think uh, you never know what you miss till you've left it or it's left you. So when I came back and I still had to depend on my aunts to cook and I had a very naughty idea. I thought when my aunts go and pass away, where am I going to eat this food? <laughs> it's true. There were no restaurants then with Pranakan food. So I would ask them to cook, you know, and show me. Uh, that's how I started. They would show me. We couldn't video it then. And I would, I could estimate, you know, and go back and buy. And Did you write down the recipes as they told you? And yes, you? I actually wanted to see them cook. And then as they're talking, the, the good thing about learning in families is that the power is passed to you over conversations. And you don't even realize your learning techniques. Right, right. So that's why I learned. And is there a tip that your aunts shared with you that you think is still relevant today for our listeners? My aunts used to tell me that, you know, I, I must learn to smell the food and whether it's, you, you sort of cook with your senses. And the last thing is taste. So you have to smell it correctly. It has to sound correct, the sizzle or not a sizzle. It has to look correct. And, you know, all that is along the way. And finally, you eat it. So I think that's very important that, you know, you have to be so concentrated on how it smells and how it looks. So that's a really good hint. Right. Almost like, a, I mean, you're discovering about the food. My daughter, Hilton, who's now 18 and cooking for herself, when I was teaching her recipes, she's like, she wouldn't taste it. And I would say, but you have to taste it because then you know if it needs a little more of this or a little of that. I mean, cooking is love, right? Yeah, you just have to taste along the way. But when I teach cooking, it's very exciting because it tastes different halfway cooked and it tastes different at the end. So I will ask people to taste it along the way mm. because then you know how it develops, right? That, that's, right? that's the fun part of it. Yeah. Is food different for you now than it was when you were a child? Well, when I was a child, I hated it. I was a skinny baby. My mother was in bed when she was pregnant. And... Um, 
I was born at five pounds, which is like quite, you know, and, and I hated to eat. And my mother spent my whole childhood trying to get me to eat. And, you know, I could eat butter and whatever. Then, oh my goodness, then I became fat. <laughs> she regretted, you know. But I think, I think a lot of food is sentiment. And my father brought me out, you know, like Sunday, Sunday sort of breakfast was always nasi melayu. And certain dishes, I think, you realise when you're grown up, is that there's an attachment and sentiment because it's to do with love. It's to do with sharing somebody in your family. Right. There's a lot of symbolism in yes, it. Yeah? yeah. When your son and daughter became involved in your restaurants, did you feel kind of a weight was lifted because you now know that another generation is going to pass this forward? You know, I sort of represented Singapore as an ambassador for food since 1988. And it was such a weight, you know, when you're like sent to sort of front your country. In 1988, Singapore wasn't well known like it is now. And I was sent on nine cities in three weeks. And it was a media tour. Like I had to be in Chicago, New York, Miami, Seattle. And I remember carrying my, you know, armed with my nyonya basket. <laughs> this between Chicago and Detroit, which was a day trip, I had this nyonya basket with crabs inside on the plane because I had to cook chili crabs. So that weight of doing it for your country has always been with me. Like I'm always sent like Singapore's food ambassador. Then you feel that it's such a commitment and it's such a, you have to be worthy of it. I think that weight was not with my children. They saw it. They followed me to Aspen and they saw what it meant. And I think they have sort of grown up with a passion. And I'm so happy that both of them are actually passionate about Singapore food, about sharing it, about, you know, oh, let's share it. To me, that's exciting. And to have, you know, the next generation do this. Well, uh, somebody told me that I'm very fortunate because their children are not interested at all in whatever they like. Is there any tip or wisdom that you shared with them when they got involved in the restaurant business that you think could be valuable to our listeners? Actually, in the family, is more sort of organic or more like you don't really have to do it. And I think mainly the tip is that they have to see you, actually do it. And I think my daughter has said that she was always seeing me being so focused and passionate. And, you know, when I'm representing Singapore, like Aspen, we had to do this food and wine classic. As I said, Singapore wasn't so well known there. And you say, oh my goodness, I have to show that what is the best that what we can do, you know. So I brought a Kutupat Weaver, for example, who was a driver, <laughs> mm -hmm. you know. I think the tip is that you have to be true and it's authentic. And I think we've always wanted to be true to the culture. And the culture can mean so many things. And so when you were visiting all those cities, yeah. what was the response from people to the food that you were sharing? They were quite excited. I mean, I'm Pranakan, which means we are very... East-West. And so it was easy for me to understand from the American psyche in the point of view. I think they were fascinated. But the most interesting thing was it was handled by a PR agency in America. And I said, I eat pearls for my complexion. My mother, you know, you grind it. And they said, oh, how lovely, you know. And then we were live on TV, you know, in the morning. And then they heard that there was one experience as a food critic where, you know, you have this thing called gupiang in Chinese, which is bull's penis. So... The PR said, oh dear, pity the stockyards have left Chicago. I was saying, thank goodness the stockyards have left Chicago. <laughs> they were going to put this in front of me. That's so funny. You know? Yeah, so funny. Yeah. And, but you know, PRs are so, so good. They were so intense on getting it correct and getting, you know, out there. And I think you feel the weight of representing your country. But if you love it and you're passionate and you're like so process driven, that whole thing is fun actually. Well, listeners, just so you know, Violet and I are friends and we know each other personally. And I know that I've heard her say this more than once, that your parents 
did not want you to grow up with a privileged life. Yes. And they sent you to boarding school at the age of 11 to the convent school and to board as a boarder. Yes. They wanted you not prepared for a life of luxury, but instead ready for World War III. Yeah. And and the convent school had yeah. to shape you. And did you just think, my parents are crazy. Why are they doing this to me? My parents were maybe two generations before that time. They were like Lee Kuan Yew's generation cohort. In you know, uh, My father was in Raffles College. And very politicized for you know knowing what's happening in the world. I was an only child, which they decided by choice, which was very unusual. Before they got married, they decided they couldn't have only one child, whether it's a girl or a boy. Now, you must remember in Asia, that was so alien, mm. you know, that to decide to have a girl. And they said because they wanted that child to have all the experiences and privileges as experiences, uh, not money. So we went for a holiday every year, which nobody did, you know, and I was on my cruise ship on the first plane, age of two from Kalang Airport. And I have pictures of that. But then I was an only child and I became a bit precocious and used to talking with adults. So they said, oh, she has to uh, be used to children her age. We were living in Katong and they put me in the convent, which is now Chimes. And every other child that went in was because their parents were in some really remote place in the jungles working. And the Reverend Mother told my mother, this is the only child that came in happy. I thought in it blightened midnight fees, you know. Mm -hmm. yes. and, and actually, we were on the third floor and we went to, in the dormitory, we went to sleep with the blinking lights of the Capitol Cinema and, you know, with the nuns sort of. And the food was, of course, super horrible. I think boarding school experience anywhere prepares you for World War III. <laughs> and, and he said, not necessary to learn to get used to a life of luxury that you can get used to overnight but you better get used for, for World War III. He grew up in World War II, you know, and, but he was quite privileged. He was in India. And one day I remember telling him that the nuns ate at the top of the table and, you know, an Irish nun, she ate with a fork and knife, banana peel, <laughs> you know. And one girl threw away her food in the dustbin and the nun found out and made her take it out and eat it. I told my father, he said, very good. You know, no sympathy. He says, you're supposed to share the food. You don't throw away food. You know, a farmer has tilled the land for the fries and all that. So, till today, I'm not fussy about food. It's quite funny. I'm, I'm a food critic. I'm used to the best food in the world. But I can eat anything without a fuss. You know, because I feel that in the world, maybe we should not make the enjoyment of food of matter of life and death. It has really become a priority for because some of us. for millions of people in the world, having food or not having food is a matter of life and death, you know? And then I think however we enjoy whatever, we have to be mindful of mm -hmm. that. That there are millions and millions of people who are not as fortunate as us. And, you know, I, I always feel by a fate of history, we're in a place where we are fortunate. I could be in another place where I could be educated and I have to be a maid in another country just through being in a wrong place at the wrong time. Exactly. You know, and, and we are so, birthright. Yeah, and we are so lucky birth to be yeah, at the right place at the right time. Be honest, when you had your children, yeah. did you rear them the same way where you did not want them to have privilege but to be yeah. prepared? I think not as uh, draconian as my father because my father was so into that idea. But I suppose I kept on telling them and, and, and they know it, you know. And I think... I'm quite happy that they're not feeling that they're entitled to things. I think somewhere there. <laughs> not as intense as my father and my mother. So no convent school for Sulin? No convent school for <laughs> Sulin. <laughs> yeah. 
by the time she went to university, she and her friends were traveling as students from London to, you know, Los Angeles, etc. I said, the way you are, is like we would be taking a bus from town to Changi. But that's life, you know, the whole world changes. Yeah. And it's even now with my 18-year-old, it's even faster than I it know, was then. You know, but in those days when you went to London, 1961, you don't come back, you know. We flew there, which was unusual. We came back. But people went by ship and came back by ship. They, they went for four years and that was it. And never, you know, and they come back after they study or they, or they live there. Before we proceed, let's take a quick break. Violet, I'd like to turn and talk a little bit about purpose. And I wonder if your thirst to learn more and to educate others was what kind of fueled your desire to become a journalist initially. I became a journalist by mistake. Oh. I, I did sociology and political science. I did geography, which is so important. I don't use GPS. I want to know where I am in the world, in the globe, you know, which mm-hmm. is exactly where I am. So I graduated and we lived in Cane Hill, in Hilltops, which is redeveloped as hilltops. And I didn't have a job for six months because I didn't want to work in Shenton Way. It was so business district. I didn't want to work in Jurong, which was a new sort of industrial area, so new. And it was like, you know, like, my goodness, it's like another world. And so finally, my father asked, is it about time you gave your mother some money every month? You know, that's very Asian. And so he says, okay, Uncle Ting Soon is the editor of Street Science. Why don't you I'll ask him? So I went. And Street Science was okay because it was in the center. It was in Kim Seng Road, <laughs> you know, and not Chantelui and not Jurong. And it was such a happy happenstance because I never knew I could write. You know, it's like in my generation, we went to university with the aim to work for somebody. Mm-hmm. You never knew you were creative, you know. I think the younger generation is so wonderful, the creativity. But what we had was, which is what? Maybe younger people don't have. We had the humility of not being over-impressed by our creativity. Mm. It's like we never knew we could create. So all the plays in Singapore were like still by, you know, Shakespeare, etc. And I was a singer. And everything you interpreted somebody else. So it never occurred to you that you could be creative. Mm-hmm. And, and so I went into writing and I found that, oh, I love writing. I'm a busybody, you know. <laughs> As a reporter, you can ask anybody anything, right? you know, and that's lovely. And so then what led you to open the food outlets and restaurant? I studied singing. We were in London. We were in the near Royal Academy of Music. And my mother, to show you how daring she was, she marched me down to the academy and went to the daughter and said, my daughter, I want her to learn piano and voice. Can you recommend uh, students? So I had students come to my house. And then theory, I got the professor who was in the attic and, you know, once a week. And then I did voice, I did elocution, I did piano. And when we were coming back, my teachers told my parents that I should stay back there to do music because I was very talented. And this is interesting. My father said, you can choose, it's up to you. But this was 1963. Remember, if you stay here, you may never have a country. Because you go back, you don't have friends. And... We, we saw people who immigrated, you know, who would, and you are not belonging. I said, okay, so I'm going home. <laughs> so I went home. And then I started singing and, you know, it was like something that I wanted to do. So they said, you have to get a degree first and you can, I was supposed to go to Juliet to do voice. 
And then I fell in love and that was the end of that. But the real reason was that I knew I wasn't good enough. Right. My instrument, which is the voice, which is like the piano, was not good enough. And I think in life, sometimes you have to know that you're not good enough. I wasn't good enough to be world-class, so I wasn't interested. So I went into writing about. And you did the writing. Yes. But then what led you to open the outlets in the restaurant? I don't even know. Maybe sharing. Maybe, okay, I was consulting with Takashimaya before it opened for two years. And then this this outlet space became available because one hotel uh, pulled out of it. So I said, okay, why don't I do it? They said, yeah, lovely. And it was free. Everything was set up. And so I started. So a good and bad thing about me is that I don't overplan. And then we did outlets and, you know, I realized I'm not a business person because we were not brought up to be business people. We are not brought up to be entrepreneurial. And especially when you're a journalist, it's even more not brought up, you know, <laughs> to be doing business. And it wasn't as successful. So you realized once you started the business that you needed help on the business side. I didn't even realize that. You know, we had no such thing as a business plan. I mean, it's like students now, they're learning all this. We, it was really, you're learning arts or science or medicine. You know, that's 1960s. And I grew up, you must remember, I grew up in the women's lip time. You know, there was the Paris riots with the students. And there was Burn the Bra. And then women in Singapore threw the walk. It became unusual for my generation because I actually cooked. So I tell people I cook like a man does for fun, you know. While women in my generation, in my time, were supposed to cook for the men in their lives. And a friend of mine was actually sent to London to learn piano so that she could take care of her brother. And she, I wasn't brought up that way. And it was such a revelation to me that she had such resentment. You know, and, and it was like, you're not cooking for yourself. But for me, it was fun. Mm-hmm. And I learned it as a fun hobby. And so in a way, like a man cooks, like, you know, you, you, leave, you cook, you leave a mess and you go out of the kitchen. So when you had the outlets in the yeah. restaurant and you realized that you needed a business plan, that changed things for you or? No, I, mean, I didn't. I mean, it failed and I closed the restaurants and I just went on to consulting mm-hmm. and doing all the other work that I did. And the failure taught you what? Actually, when you're a creative person, failure is part of the whole process. When you make a movie, let's say Steven Spielberg or somebody, you know, even Tom Cruise, one movie makes $1 billion and you are the biggest thing in the world and next movie bombs. And you're no more the biggest thing in the world. And I think as a creative person, you have to be true to the creation and not think, is it going to be a success or not? I mean, if that's the case, you have to have the luxury of being able to pay the rent in order to have that mindset, yes? No, I was very broke. (laughs) And you know, I've been through very terrible times. Strangely, I don't get depressed, you know. And maybe it's to do with being a journalist because, or being a geographer that, oh, wow, what's next? Mm-hmm. What's around the corner, right. you know? And I think a lot of creative people are totally broke. And, you know, you see in Hollywood, they're living under the, in the hills underneath people's houses, you know what I'm saying? And that they are waiting for the next audition and they are waiters and waitresses so that they can audition. And when they go for the audition, they have to be perky. So I think that's part of being creative. It's not as easy as all that. Well, tell me this, because I know you've written, is it four books? Yeah. Four books, and you've been on TV, and you have this purpose to share your knowledge and Mm -hmm. talk about the local food Mm -hmm. of this part of the world. Why is that so important to you? And why did you feel you needed to write books and to share this? Sharing is always very important. I don't know how to explain it's organic. It's not that I sit down and I, I have to do this. 
with my life, you know what I'm saying? But I think it's just a whole sharing. I tell people that if you're going to be an Olympian and win the 100-meter race, you start with the first step, you know, you don't start with the last step. So that first step is so important. And you're just focused on, I suppose for them, they're focused on winning. But I'm just focused on the process. I don't know how to explain it. And I love it when I'm sharing something, like even now, okay, you know, you have to put this in the oven till the oil bubbles. And I realize, okay, people don't know what it means when the oil bubbles and I will video it. Because it happened to me when I was testing recipes. When I was eight, 17, 18, I used to buy a magazine weekly called Supercook. I still have all of them. And you would just try, I would do like roast beef, roast pork. And my university friends remember that, you know, they used to come and have to eat all the experiments. And then you try and create this whole scene, you know. And then you're reading this recipe and they said, do something for 10 minutes. And actually 10 minutes is very, very, very long when you're waiting. <laughs> and halfway through, I was thinking, cannot be. And then you just stop it. And so it's something that I time now. I tell people, you have to wait for this to happen because it will happen. And, you know, so I really enjoy that process. I mean, till today, I'm enjoying it. You know, I, I'm enjoying that whole uh, mystery of not only local food. I'm enjoying the mystery. I just learned to make gnocchi, mm. which I love. I love gnocchi. Know, I know. And then I think the whole mystery of uh, marrying something hard like technique with something magical comes at the end of it. So it's creative plus technical. Pass the Power will be right back after the break. Let's turn to passion. Mm. And you told me that one of your mantras is one must reinvent oneself yeah. every five years. And I love this because I feel like I'm kind of following in your footsteps mm -hmm. with that. So can you tell us how this mantra came to be? Is it something that you keep saying organic? Was it organic in your life and you realized that every five years you were doing this? Or is it something that you thought about? Okay, I sometimes I read what people say. I thought, oh, wow, this is exciting. So I think it's from somewhere. I, th I think that's true, you know, reinvent yourself every five years. Because I'm now 72, and in my mind, I'm forever 18, you know. I'm forever 38. Yeah, I'm forever 18. <laughs> but, and I still remember that. So when I meet a young person, when I was forever 18, when I started working, I thought everybody 30 and above was dead, and it's true, you know. They so, still think that today. Yeah. When, when, I, when I meet a young person, I'm thinking, to them, I'm dead, you know, because I'm 72. But I think it's correct, because... You must remember what you were then in that, you know, passion of your youth to not be too judgmental on the passion of the youth today because you had that, you know. So I'm forever 18 and, you know, I take a picture, I'm so vain because in the end, how many people are seeing you in real life? Your picture stands forever, right? And so it's, it's a very vanity thing. But, you know, I'm, I'm quite sort of honest about my vanity. A little bit of vanity is okay. Yes, I know. So it's like, you know, you do have to reinvent yourself every five years because otherwise, by this age, you're starting to sound like a broken record. When I was young, you know, this is like, when you were young was when you were young. You know, life goes on, the world changes. And if the world, I mean, it may have changed for better or for worse, but it does change. You can't do anything about it. Like now we can do something about it, right? In the here and now you can do, but you can't do about something 30 years ago. And so, and it's fun, right, to reinvent yourself. Mm. And, you know, I'm in this age, I tell people that I have to learn at least five new things every day. Tell us, who is the new or the next Violet Un? What is the next? 
I reinvention. Really, you know, I, I mean, I enjoy the restaurants. We still love creating and, you know, finding things to do. But now, I think I really, really have to sit down and start imparting and recording and especially Singapore, because every country morphs and changes, right? So unless people put down their memories, nobody's going to remember what. And then you get people like some posting pictures of this was what Orchard Road was. But those pictures, but it doesn't mean anything. So you maybe have to share what it was so that a younger person, and I feel that it's very important. I did a talk for Disney, you know, for storytelling Bootcamp, and I was so amazed. There were two Oscar winners there. So I was telling this, you know, they asked me to tell this story over dinner. So what happened in Disney was that I gave a quote that said, "There is no future without respect for the past, not adoration of the past, respect." And I, I tell everybody, you know, like in America, there is a future for the culture. Let's say the pop culture, because every 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 most cutting edge musician rapper references Elvis. You know, references the Beatles. And then, did you know that Charlie Chaplin composed Smile, which was Michael Jackson's favourite song? So if you don't know all that and you're just creating out of nothing, isn't it boring? You know, and you do not know. And you have to know what happened in the past because how do you know that what you're creating is new? Mm. It may have been done before. So you want to build a legacy yeah. of the, the reference of history of yeah. what you know yeah. and, with the Peranakan and, you know, food. The, the, not Peranakan food, just no. Singapore as I knew it. Oh, okay. So I was going to say, it sounds like you need to write a memoir. No, I was born in 1949, right? And then I've seen, I've grown up in colonial times and I've seen independence. I came back by ship from Gibraltar to Singapore. I mean, when we left London, my father, and nobody believes it, we took a, a white Vauxhall to Dover, my parents and I, and the car drove into a plane. And we went by <laughs> air ferry. Drove into yes, a plane. Yes, into the plane. And we went by air ferry to Calais. Oh, my. And 1963, right? And we drove and we came out in Calais. And my father, I remember that, oh, you must uh, see this sculpture, I think, by Rodin, right? The man. Mm -hmm. So there are things that you have to see. You don't have to like it. You have to taste it. You don't have to even, you know, enjoy it. But you have to know. Mm. So we drove through the Loire Valley to France, to Spain. I saw my first bullfight. And then we entered in Gibraltar. And we went and the car drove into the ship called the Himalaya, the ocean liner, which is, I think, one of those last great P&O. And landed in Penang on 31st of August, 1963, to, at night to fireworks, independence in Malaysia. So I remember all that. And, you know, my father was in Malacca. He was in Shell. He was a general manager. And I didn't know until somebody told me when, you know, the, the country got first, I think, self-government in 1957. They opened the Malacca Club to locals. And this friend of ours was the member 001 and my father was 002. So when you're talking about things like that, I think it's so important to know, right? It's fascinating. And to have that backdrop. So it's not Pranakan food. Pranakan food is just one little part of me. It's just those experiences and to know that this actually happened. Now, whoever knew a car went into a plane in 1963, you know what I'm saying? But I do think it's important for you to do this because I yeah. do think that you are stereotyped in such a way. And yeah, people you, think I only cook. I'm yeah, only a cooker. And <laughs> yeah. you, you have so much more going for you. So very quick story on driving onto a plane. Yeah. When Jim and I went around the world, yes. we were in Angola and we had to yeah. escape a war zone. So there was a Russian cargo plane flying into the capital yeah. of Angola. Yeah. So we drove our car onto the cargo plane and it flew us over the war zone. Oh my so goodness. I have also driven onto a plane, but in a very different... <laughs> 
different circumstances. <laughs> circumstances. I know. But, you know, it's, it's like, you, I mean, you've had such exciting journeys, right? And that sort of, that is part of your life forever. And you're sharing it because other people haven't had. Okay, when I became a writer, what was so important was me as a writer, I was thinking, I don't care whether I'm promoted, but I am the window to the world mm. for my reader. There was no social media. Like there was Life magazine, which was the window to the world, all those photographs. And what window do I want my readers to see? And I was so fortunate to have a lot of wonderful windows. You know, chefs taught me how to cook. So I said, I'll share this with my readers. Tell me the top quality that helped you become a successful restaurateur. Okay, I don't think I'm successful, you know. Uh, No, 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 really, 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 I don't. When I get any award, it's like I never go towards that. That's not my purpose. My whole purpose is, wow, I want to do it so well. I I want to represent it. I want to, you know. So for the listeners, it would be that you just have to have that very strong yes. purpose and passion that and leads you? And the rest you? comes. But I, maybe one thing I told my children is that, you know, when you want to choose something to do in your life, you have to do something you love. Because even as being very calculative as a career, you're going to do better than the person who doesn't love it. For sure. Because whatever time you put on it is fun. It's no chore. So maybe one thing to share. I was a f- music critic for 10 years. I was, and your, your work resonates. Last year, I was asked to give a talk in the National Gallery. I was so proud of it. You know, Because 1971, I was an art critic and my words were on the walls. So if you do a job well, it resonates. It can hit you back 50 years later. Well, you know, and it doesn't go away. So at a certain point, I was doing food and I got the food column because the editor said, the food columnist is leaving. We better have somebody who knows how to cook to write about food. So that happened. And then I wanted to give up music. As a critic, I felt it was so important. I went to children's concerts, would you believe it? And I did Chinese opera in the middle of the boondocks because I felt it, was, it wasn't even duty. It was, you have to do it. Otherwise, how are you going to reflect what music means in your culture, right? And then somebody said, but why are you giving this up? Because it's starting to get fashionable. The government is starting to give grants. So you are now in the fashionable thing. I said, you know, I'm starting to feel bored. If I'm starting to feel bored, my writing must be starting to be boring. I better leave before people think, what on earth is she writing? You know, so you you must know that whatever you do is reflected in what you do, you know, and however you feel. For you to say that you don't feel like you're a success is a little bit shocking, but I know no, I don't. you also, your commitment and your focus in life, you told me that 10% is talent and 90% is yeah, hard work. Yeah. So can you tell us then what success means to you if you don't feel like you're a success? I mean, success means giving a talk to the National Gallery 50 years later after I wrote. I mean, success means your work does resonate to me. You know, it's like, okay, I have done something correct. You know, actually, all these awards are totally unexpected. I'm asking, are you sure? Now, when when I got my tourism award, I thought, oh dear, how am I going to show I'm worthy of this? And I turned 70 on the same week. So I decided to do seven things, community things, which I long coming because I didn't do enough to celebrate each decade of my life. So you have to pay it forward, right? Like I'm getting this award. I have to be deserving going forward. Going back is too bad. You know what I mean? It's finished. So I, well, you I, wouldn't receive the award if you weren't worthy. So you don't have to look back, but you're saying because of it, it makes yeah. you work even harder yes. going forward. You have, to, you have to even be more worthy of it. You know what I'm saying? Getting an award uh, from your country is something that you have to continue to be worthy. 
I love my seven things. I did videos for the Singapore National Stroke Association. By the way, I'm an inspiring patient of the year for, for this year. Oh, wow. Sing Health, I know. Then I say, how come? The same because of your attitude, you know? Well, this is, would be a good time for you to share with the listeners. Seven years ago, you did have a stroke. I did have a stroke. And for many, many people, yeah. it is so bad. Yeah. And mentally, they get just so I, unhappy. And you didn't let that, that happen. I, I was fortunate because physically... I lost my balance. That's why now I, I can walk like a drunken sailor, you know, and I can fall down if I'm not careful. That's not safe. So I have to be very careful. But I lost my balance. I called my son, his girlfriend, who's now his wife, came and she's a doctor and brought me to GH. And then I'm so fortunate. At no point did I panic or feel anything. I'm a very sort of matter-of-fact person. And then they asked me to... Uh, swallow something and got a speech therapist. And I'm just fascinated. Why on earth is a speech therapist? I found out because when you have a stroke, it affects your motor skills. And then when you swallow, going to your lungs and going to your stomach is the same channel. So you could actually choke to death without knowing. I said, oh, so fun, you know. And one day they tested me when, when they let me swallow and I saw this x-ray going on. And it's strange. I found it fascinating. And I was in hospital and every process I think, you know, I was always worried that MRI would be terrifying, but it's not. I went to sleep. It's like a cocoon. But it sounds like you took this as another opportunity to learn and discover. It's not even how I took it. It's just that it was like that. And my daughter said that we were going to do a very uh, major catering in the cathedral for 400 people. And, you know, of course, they were worried. But they said, this is the interview. She knew I was okay when next day I sent a picture. Can you bring my hair dryer? I had a picture. Can you bring my makeup? Because I must be made up. I'm coming from the generation that makes up, okay? And does the hair. So she said, okay. Then she knew I was okay. Then I was in bed and I had books. I had, my friend said, what do you want? I said, I want a, a DVD, which nobody had seven years ago. They had to find it in some place in Simlin. And I played music. And then I was in a room for four, which I, I like, you know, because people are around you. And I find that I can sleep to anything. And then I had the music and I had my books. I had my magazines and I had my makeup and all. And then I realized, hey, life is on a bed. That's, in, that's enough. <laughs> that's okay. You know? And then I learned, I, I couldn't walk. And I had to be, you know, brought to on a wheelchair to the bathroom, etc. And then when I went for my physiotherapy, I'm not an exerciser. So I'm doing things I never did in my life. Oh, so my goodness, I can do this. So it's like, it's not even a decision to be cheerful. It's just, I'm like that. Just d dealing with the fate that yeah, I'm like was that. upon you. Yeah. And then we had a baking class by the, the occupational therapist decided to give a baking class. We had to learn again to, you know, do things. Like, we were like put passing balloons to each other. And then, what has happened since then is that I tell people, it's not a good thing, but now I know what it means to be challenged. Because your mind is challenged mentally. When I'm tired, it's like a scramble. So I understand it. I understand what happens when a child has a meltdown. You know, and I know what to do. And I understand a physical challenge. And then you are more understanding and it's okay, this is what people go through. Yeah. It's, it's very like process. I don't know. It's just very process driven. Yeah. I think another challenge you faced was uh, being a female in a male dominated yeah. Yeah. industry. And even today, women yeah. are not yeah. paid what yeah. men are paid. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So when you started, what were the challenges that you had to overcome? Okay. I, I wasn't a chef in the kitchen, right? And I was brought up, I'm totally non-sexist to my upbringing. And so that never came into my mind. <laughs> and um, it's like, I, I think I didn't go through the ranks. My daughter says, when she got lost in the supermarket as a, as a child, she said, my mother is a cooker. In my mind, I'm a cooker, you know? And I think 
that maybe when a woman is in the kitchen and, and I interviewed a chef, you know, she said that actually you're a bit different because I say, yeah, because we are hostesses, we are hospitality people. We want to feed people. We're so used to people coming home and, you know, you're feeding, are you happy? Are you, are you enjoying? And the greatest joy to me is to hear like, an older woman or man coming, maybe 70 or 80, and the son bringing for a meal. And then my grandmother says the food is okay. That's the biggest compliment. <laughs> because grandmothers are very happy to say food is not okay. You know? And my grandmother said food is okay. You know? And, and she says it's fine. And you know, she's quite happy coming here. And to me, wow, that's like, wow. I've met the most stringent test. You know, that somebody who can cook and says this. So as a female, as a woman, you did not feel... I suppose I wasn't long enough working to feel the salary. I think I was a journalist. I, was there a salary imbalance? I don't think so. I wasn't in the corporate world, so I didn't get any of that. And maybe in the creative world, it's a bit different. Don't go yet. Pass the Power will continue after the break. have advice for the listeners, some of whom surely are interested yeah. in establishing themselves in F&B. Yeah. What's your one piece of advice for them? From what I see what people are doing, you either have to be a very good business person or you have to be a very good cook. You can be either. I mean, some very good business persons with concepts, they, they create amazing restaurants and they don't cook. It's not necessary, right? But you have to know what people want. And um, something I read resonates with me that like 30, 40 years ago when Japanese were conquering the world, they said, Japanese in marketing, uh, like Americans create what they like and then they persuade you that, try and convince you that you should like it. Japanese find out what you want and they go and make something for you. Like they will change the, the uh, chair covers, etc. for different countries. And I thought that's interesting. So that's one way to approach F&B business, mm -hmm. to know what people want, you know, and, and to meet, meet the need. And then the other one is to be passionate about something that you're cooking, that you're creating. What do you wish you'd known when you started your career? Nothing, actually. It's okay. The way it worked out is just fine. You know, if you know too much, you won't try, you know. <laughs> I mean, when I think of it, I don't think Steve Jobs knew anything, except he loved to have beautiful typeface. I mean, that's what I heard. Was he really the technician? I don't think so. But he knew what he wanted to do. Now, for his success, I'm sure there are thousands and thousands of failures equal Steve Jobs. You know what I'm saying? Yes. Equally. And you just have to try, right? And, and you don't know whether... I suppose you have to try something that you really, really want to try. Yes. And if you try and fail, that's okay. Yeah. If I had known how hard the trip around the world I know, was you going to be with Jim, I would not have done it. And yeah. he tried to warn me. Yeah. You know? But yeah. I was very naive and I just... And then you get out there and you're like, wow, this is hard as hell. But it's every day, right? It's okay. <laughs> I mean, you get through the day, you go to sleep. Get up. But it's like, sometimes you better not know, right? I mean, put it this way. What has happened in the last century? Did anybody know that a plane could fly? It's just somebody who had this dream and thought. So everything that you see is created by somebody who saw something that never existed. So how can you train for something that never existed? Tell us something you failed at or something you change looking back at your life? I wouldn't think that way because you can't change anything. You have to change yourself today for tomorrow. But maybe if you look back, there's something that you can impart to the listeners that might help them. I think, but this would be what a lot of listeners have now, you know, to have some business knowledge because everybody studies it now, you know, business, entrepreneurship. And I said my generation were brought up, I think, around the world to be working for somebody. 
now everybody wants to be an art- entrepreneur and have and, a startup. Yeah. You know, and, and you learn it in school, which we never learned anything. What is a good thing that came out of COVID-19 for you? I think it made us all stop. And I think we were too much in a frenzy of developing, developing, developing. Of course, it's terrible. You know, I mean, some people are going through the most amazing hardships and we have to be so aware of that. But it's given people, I mean, I've met a few people, it's given them the chance to stop and develop things which they never could have developed otherwise, ideas, you know. And I think it gives you the time to reflect and, and to be learning to be happy in your own company because, you know, otherwise, like, you, you know, to me it's okay that I can't meet anybody because maybe I'm an only child. But then when happy in your own company, that means you have to be thinking and you're actually spending so much more time thinking, I think. I'm also an only child and yeah. I'm very happy alone. Yeah. Yeah, you're, you know, you're happy <laughs> with your own company, yes. right? Yes, it's yes, like, yes. and people don't understand, you know. I can go and eat in a restaurant by myself. Me too. I was yeah. telling my daughter because she's yeah. in London waiting for her yeah. second yeah. shot. And I was like, just go and have and dinner. And she's like, I'm not going to eat alone. That's what. <laughs> I, I go to cinemas alone and somebody met me and got the shock of their life. You know, like somebody in the cinema alone. I mean, I then have to coordinate somebody, you know. Is there a question you wish that I'd asked? I mean, I think you, your questions are wonderful. Oh, thank you. It's, yeah. it's so nice to have you with us. So these are just kind of the wrapping up questions. Quick fire. One trend you'd like to end Okay, I'm not a trendy, I'm a dinosaur. I'm not a trendy person. So I don't really follow trends, but I know that trends are important because otherwise things don't change. So I really have no idea. I thought you were going to say people are spending too much time on their phones. Does it concern you? It does, it does and it doesn't. But what I tell people is that Actually, why are you taking everybody's picture except your grandmother cooking? I mean, she's dead. Then you, <laughs> no, it's true. They're taking pic, you know, videos of meaningless stuff. And then I always hear this. Huh? I so regret I never learned from my grandmother. Because when she's dead, you're not going to taste that food. You better video your grandmother cooking for four hours beginning to end. You don't have to record the recipe. Listeners, I hope you are taking this one down. You record your grandmother's Because everybody, or, or their mother, I'm hearing this all the time. You know, my grandmother, but then she became senile. That was the end of the story. You know, please use your phone for your family stuff. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Tell us your favorite comfort food. Uh, it's actually porridge or Malay food. Malay food is because my father brought me on Sunday. So that's part of sentiment. And, you know, I love porridge when I'm... It's like chicken soup for the soul, right? And you would prepare it? Yes, I would prepare it. I mean, I, I love to prepare the real old school, that proper Chinese clay pot and all that. Currently reading or watching? Okay, I love murder mysteries. I'm doing Andrea... Camerelli, I think, and Inspector Montalbano. I love mysteries. I don't love thrillers and I don't love uh, psycho stuff, but I love mysteries. MBS, Gardens by the Bay, Jewel or Botanic Gardens? At the moment, Jewel, because I have to exercise and walk. And it's not safe for me on sort of outside because I can trip. So Jewel is nice and still an adventure. If you could be a superhero, what power would you have? That we could feed everybody. Such a nice answer. Yeah. Please tell us your favorite drink and with whom you'd share it. My favorite drink is so unusual. It's creme de menthe, green peppermint with that, you know, lurid color. And tastes like toothpaste. And it must be iced and served on the rocks. And the other one is Bailey's Irish Cream. So I don't think anybody would like to share with me. I was thinking, Agatha Christie? <laughs> yes. She wrote about uh, her creme de menthe. Yeah. That's a wonderful yeah. answer. Violet, please tell us your parting words to pass the power on to our listeners. Okay, I tell everybody this, you know, and back to Steve Jobs, right? He gave a speech and he said, stay hungry and stay foolish. 
And I think you must forever stay hungry. Not greedy, stay hungry and stay foolish. Because unless you're foolish, you're not going to try different things. Wonderful advice. Thank you so much for being here today. I feel like you've really imparted great knowledge. You've shared your life. And hopefully the listeners now will know that you are far more than, than, the cooker. <laughs> than Singapore's grand dame of, of, of Peranakan food. Thank you so you much. Amazing woman. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Please write to me on Instagram with your top takeaway from today. Since I'm still new at this, please leave a five-star review on Apple Podcast or click the follow button on Spotify. Share my podcast on your Instagram stories and please tag me at I am Paige Parker. Always know I'm eager to hear from you on guest ideas and questions for upcoming guests. If you're new to the show, be sure to listen to the previous episodes to hear from more thought leaders. Again, thank you for listening and come back next week for another episode of Pass the Power with me, Paige Parker. Together, we got this.